we finished up 1 John. We're doing some, highlighting some things that I think are important to highlight. And then we'll be looking towards, in the near future, starting another series in a book. I, I, I love to do, it's called expository preaching, and that is preaching from a book. And the reason I like that is because that's how it was written. You know, the, the books were written to us to be, to be read and studied in whole. And so I want to keep doing that. But this morning, what I, one of the things I, I was thinking about this for a few weeks, and then, and then we also just sang the Lord's Prayer. And I thought that, that time cause it was very timely because it kind of ties in with this. Because Jesus came and he told people, the kingdom of God is here. It's here right now. He, he didn't talk like big future stuff. He was saying the kingdom of God is here right now. And he used language that, that they kind of, the, the Jews would have understood. They would have understood that there is this kingdom of God. There's no sin. There's no junk. There's, there's no small-mindedness. There's no pettiness in the kingdom of God. There's no regret. There's no guilt. It, it is a place, a sphere that God is delighted in. And then we have in, in the word of God, sometimes we're talking about the kingdom of this earth or the kingdom of earth. And this is a realm that we're very familiar with. We're in the middle of it, and it's pretty messed up, and things aren't going so well in this kingdom. And so Jesus was saying, I'm going to take up there the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and I'm going to bring it down here. This is what he was doing physically. But then he taught us to work on that, and that's when he, he taught the disciples what is called the Lord's Prayer. But our Father in heaven, all right? So he's saying there's a God he has a kingdom. It's in heaven. Hallowed be your name. You're holy. Your name is holy. And he says, your kingdom come. Your will be done. So God has a kingdom and he has a will and it's to come and it's to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what he taught them to pray. All right? This isn't just some flowery thing. When, when I... Uh, I, you know, I look back on my life sometimes, and there's things you regret. I can remember um, in high school playing soccer, and our team would gather together, and we would say the Lord's Prayer uh, right before we went out. And some of, some of our players, obviously not me, were incredibly dirty players, and, but we'd say the Lord's Prayer. It's like a good luck charm that we said ahead of time, right? And, and, and we've kind of, the, the, the Lord's Prayer has become so familiar to us, we forget that it's a call. It's a call to us to, take, to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth to begin almost like insurgents, to begin to change the things around us in our sphere of influence. And in Jesus' person, in his body, that's when it actually began. So if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven looks like, if you want to know what kingdom life looks like, you just look at Jesus. And it's interesting to me because he didn't go around preaching, here are the minimal entrance requirements to heaven. Here's the minimum that you need to get into God's kingdom. He, didn't do, he, he said, look, here is, here's what the kingdom of God is. It's life in God's presence. It's life with God's power. It's here. It's now. It's available for ordinary people like you and me. Now, of course, the gospel inc includes the free forgiveness of sins you know, that as an act of grace, what Jesus did when he died on the cross and this promise of a new life that starts now and lasts forever and, and, and a life that is, we're involved in at this moment, that's all involved in that. But he's saying that also we're to be so transformed that we begin to bring that kingdom down here to this earth, this life right now. And so it started hitting me because we've talked about this before. What, 
you know, this transformation, what is transformation? What is it in a person's life? It's when we're saying, God, make up here, come down, up there, come down here in my life. It begins with that. And I want to look into that a little bit more because Jesus said, <clears throat> excuse me, that when people start to get this, when they really start to get a handle on it, when they see what's at stake, when they see what this life is, really is, then it becomes something they pursue. They want it more than anything they've ever wanted. And so Jesus tells these stories, and we've talked about these. He tells these parables about the kingdom of God. And some of them are, are kind of interesting and all, almost strange sometimes if you take the application too far. But he tells us these stories, and they are stories that illustrate the desire of how badly people want it once they realize what's at stake. It's stories about about treasures and coins and lost children and wedding banquets where people become consumed for something. This is just one of them. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, and that word great is exceeding, enormous, beyond his dreams kind of a value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. You see, Jesus is trying, he's not talking about purchasing techniques in, in the, 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 the lost treasure that's found in the field. He's not talking about real estate techniques. He's talking about how consumed someone gets when they understand what's at stake. This man is willing to sell everything for this because he was looking and he found what he was looking for. And nothing was too great to sacrifice for that. Because the point Jesus is making when someone really gets the kingdom they want the kingdom to happen in their life more than anything they've ever wanted before. And so he tells story after story to illustrate this. When I started uh, dating my I talked about this uh, not too long ago, started dating my wife. Uh, actually, I was roommates with a guy, and he, he, she wasn't my wife at the time. When I started dating Bev, I was instant dating her. My roommate was also. And I told you guys about this, and some of you were horrified that we flipped a coin to see who would get to ask her out the first time. And, uh, but I knew what I was doing, okay, because I knew my roommate, right? So she turned him down. And the good thing is, when she turned him down, I knew the questions she was going to ask before she'd go out with me. So I could have the answers just dead ready, right? You know, I'd be all over that one. And so she said, okay. And so I started planning, I started planning. And I'm telling you, I was, I was a better planner than I am now. I was thinking three or four dates into the future. I was thinking, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and that's going to blow her socks. And this, she's going, whoa, this guy's awesome, and then I'm going to do this. So for the first date, I started thinking, what's the, what, what's the one thing I could do that would just impress her so much? And the only drawback was I was, you know, this young 20-something guy who had trouble thinking beyond himself. And so... I thought I'll invite her over for my best meal and uh, with a friend so she wouldn't think it was too, you know, pushy. I'd invite her over and I'd cook this wonderful meal. And then I was uh, playing soccer at the time for uh, like a semi-pro team in, in the Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. And uh, we had been involved in a tournament and it was, this is a long time ago, it was the early tournaments for the, uh, for a, the state championship of, of these, you know, kind of club, adult club type things. And, uh, and, the, and we'd worked our way through to the championship game. And, and um, we were playing a team from Charlottesville, which mostly was players from uh, UVA. 
And so I thought, I'll take her out, I'll, no, I'll cook her dinner, and then I'll take her to this game. She will be so impressed. Right? So I got my, my best spaghetti dinner. They came over, you know, a couple ragu bottles into a pot. And, um, and uh, so we had dinner. It was me and her and her friend and, and my roommate. It was kind of awkward. She turned down. And, uh, but I was okay with it, right? You know, I knew I won that one. And uh, so we ate and we talked for a little while. And then I got changed. So then we, we, we drove out. And, and so we played in this game. And, I mean, this was huge to me. This was such a big deal to me, right? And, and I'm in, playing in this game. Every once in a while, I look over, and I see her, and she'd kind of be talking and smiling. I thought, oh, she's just eating this up. She's like, man, that guy, he's such a great, I just. So we win this game. Oh, it was a brutal game. I mean, it was a great game, but it was a brutal game. So we win this game two to one. And I, I, I come coming over after we all are celebrating, you know, and they give us a trophy and all this kind of stuff. And I come over, and she goes, oh, did you guys win? And I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to have to think through this impressing her thing a little bit better, you know, a little bit. But, but I had, you know, I had a, a, we were going to a French restaurant one time, and I was going to stop, and we were going to eat on the banks of the Potomac River one time, you know, a little picnic. I had all this stuff planned out, and I, and I wanted, because I wanted to, I wanted to impress her. It was consuming me. I was crazy about this girl. I was crazy about her. And there was nothing that I, you know, she, she I'd, I'd always, what, what would you like to do? We'll do it. And sometimes she, well, I like doing this. I'd be like, oh, golly, okay. We'll do it. This is going to be great. Why? Because Jesus says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? He's trying to find comparisons to the kingdom of God. It's like a guy who would go to great lengths to impress a girl because he thinks she's the greatest. I had to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles the other day. And, and I don't usually think of the DMV as a place of great joy, right? Because usually you go there and there's people just sitting around like they've been lobotomized, right? They're just sitting there and, you know, you say, B239, crap. <laughs> you know, they're like, I'm B487. I'm going to be here for a year. You know, you just, that's, that's, but, but at one point, right? Because my number was a little ways off. I went outside, you know, and just walked around a little bit. And out comes this man with this, looking like about 16-year-old girl. And she's composed, and they're walking out. And he goes, would you like to drive? And she goes, yes! And she gets all excited. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a 16-year-old who devotes herself to the rules of the road, logs 50 hours in and submits to some adult bossing her around, stands in the line at the DMV for days, and does it with joy because she is passing from the kingdom of pedestrians to the kingdom of drivers. Right? To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a lotto ticket that pays off. It's like getting an envelope with Ed McMahon's picture on it saying you may have won $8.7 million and you open it and you did win $8.7 million. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer. Could heart barely kept his family fed. Then one day he was shooting at some food and up from the ground came a bubbling crude oil that yes black gold texas tea a couple years ago just for fun i spoke at at the crew 
at, at CNU, and I used that, and they all knew it. And I just kept thinking, how do they know the Beverly Hillbillies? How do they know? To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's something outrageous, something crazy like that, something consuming. Jesus is trying to paint a picture for us. And he's using these word pictures saying he wants God to make up there, come down here. And that's all the human race has ever really wanted. And, and we could fixate on the cost, right? The man sold everything he had. Such a cost, but he did it gladly. He did it joyfully because he realized, and this is what's so key, he realized that what he was getting dwarfed the cost. The cost was nothing. He was getting a changed life. The cost is real, but compared to the reward, it's, it's insignificant. It's not sacrifice. It's sanity. What else would you do? What are you going to give your life to? Because if you've got something better, give your life to it. And yes, the kingdom of God requires self-denial. We, we, we understand that. It happens every, all the time, every day. Jesus talks about this a lot. He says we, we have to die to our desires. We have to give things up oftentimes. But here's the secret. Every longing that you have, every longing you even think you have, every ache in your heart when you desire more stuff or more pleasure or more success or to be more attractive or to have a bigger house or more applause or more money, all those aches is what your soul is really crying out there for is your soul is crying out for the kingdom of God to come down and to be in your life. That's what your soul is crying out for. In Acts chapter 2, the people got a hold of this, and it was happening in real life. They were devoting themselves. They were devoting their time. They were devoting their energy, their careers. They were devoting their families, their possessions, their securities, their very lives. Some of them gave up. They were devoting, devoting them to this, to this kingdom, and they did it with joy because they couldn't believe they were the ones that were getting, they were getting it. It was happening. And you think about that early church, it's an amazing thing. There was rich people and poor people sitting next to each other. There were Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free. There'd never been a community like this in the world. And when the world saw this, they saw these people devoting themselves to each other and that it was actually happening in this world. Luke says at the end of that passage, they were enjoying the favor of all the people. I love Eugene Peterson's translation in this, the message. He says, he says, and people generally liked what they saw. They saw these people and they said, I like that. I like that. Now, I, I want to say this. I don't want you to get too big of a head, but I, not too long ago I was talking to somebody and they were saying, I came into this building and there was something here. Something. And I liked it. And so they formed a little community, and they go out, and the kingdom starts breaking out in places like the DMV and the shipyard and Langley and CNU and high schools and Starbucks and J.C. Penny. It just starts breaking out everywhere. That's why we exist, to be a part of that. That's why we're here. But it leads to a very difficult question, a sobering question for us. If what Jesus said is true, if this is what's supposed to happen, the obvious question is, then why isn't the world breaking down the doors to come into churches? 
And I think that's because there's a crisis in the church, in this community of faith, the church in general, around what the transformed life, what the kingdom life looks like. Because what have we done, especially in our culture? We've minimalized knowing Jesus Christ to simply what are the minimal requirements to get into heaven. And I think we've done a great disservice to people when we do that because it gives people the wrong kind of vision. It gives people this vision of if I just meet the minimal requirements, I'm good. And nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Just meet the minimal requirements and it's all going to be okay. So what does the kingdom life look like? And what happens is people settle for a different kind of life just based on minimal stuff. And so there's something I want to talk about here because I think this is an important dynamic for us to address. All right? It's it's not easy. We have to stop and think for a little bit. I don't want to lose you. So, so hang in here with me for about five minutes. There's a New Testament scholar named James Dunn, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. And in it, he talks about, in Jesus' day, that the vast majority of rabbinic writings, Jewish writings, were about three areas of the law. Circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath-keeping. The vast majority, the overwhelming majority of these writers by theologians were about circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath keeping. And Dunn writes in his book, he says, why would they spend all their time writing about that when every rabbi knows what the heart of the law is? The heart of the law is this, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Why weren't they writing all their writings about that? And the heart of the Levitical law, love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Why aren't the, the two most important things, why aren't they writing about that? They're writing about circumcision and dietary laws and, and, and Sabbath keeping. And my whole thought is, how much about circumcision can you write? Yeah. And who wants to? Uh, yeah, that's a whole other thing. All right. So to explain this, this is what to me is very interesting. Dunn writes about what sociologists call identity markers or boundary markers. And the idea is this. All and hang here's where I don't want to lose you. All groups tend to be exclusive. This is human nature. All groups of people tend to want to know certain things. Who's inside? Who's outside? Who's the member? Who's not? Who's the sheep? Who's the goat? All groups tend to adopt, kind of informally, these boundary markers, these identity markers. They're very visible. They, they're often very superficial practices but they're visible. It could be the, your vocabulary, the way you talk. It could be the way you dress. It, it could be certain rules about behavior that distinguish, are you in or are you out? So we know, because here's the thing, they would wrestle with this. How do we know someone's transformed? How do we know someone's transformed? So what they did is they said, well, let's figure out the marks of a transformed person. And the problem is they got real superficial. They talked about circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping, right? Now, before we look down on them, we do that too. We do that all the time. But just so you get the point, let's suppose, let's suppose you lived in San Francisco in the 60s and you saw this vehicle driving by. Who would you think was driving? What kind of a person, if we're talking boundary markers? Hippies, right? Hippies. 
All right, let's just go into a little more of this one. Let's suppose it's in the 80s, all right? Um, let's suppose you see somebody in, uh, pulls up next to you and they're driving a BMW and their hair, this man's hair has been carefully moosed and a Rolex watch and Gucci shoes and he's going to a wine and brie tasting party, right? That's a yuppie. That's what that is, all right? Go to blank screen, don't want you to, all right? But, but we all have this. We all have, because you can say, well, uh, well, no. Some of you are saying, yeah, I was a hippie. Yeah, okay, yeah, you get it, all right? All groups have this. Bikers have it. Surfers have it. Jocks have it. Nerds have it. They all have boundary markers to say whether you're in or whether you're out, whether you're one of us or whether you're not one of us. Now, it could be, as I said, it could be the way you dress. It could be your vocabulary. It could be all kinds of different things that identify who you are. And so in Jesus' day, the rabbis spent all their time focusing on three things, circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath keeping, because those were boundary markers, and they were pretty obvious. You could figure it out to know who's inside and who's outside. And so that's how they would look, and that's how we do it. Churches do it. Churches do it, right? I mean, I know of a church, and I'm not going to bat, but I know of a church tradition where they believe you, sh you shouldn't wear makeup, right? So you say, Bob, do you think makeup's wrong? No, I, I don't think makeup's wrong. I mean, that's make the <laughs> makeup's great, whatever. I mean, some of us... Some of us don't get to, I mean, some of us have that terrible idea, a terrible situation where we wake up in the morning and we look at our face in the mirror and we go, this is as good as it's going to get all day right here. This is it. This is what I got and this is all I got, okay? So I'm not again, but, but for some churches, that's a boundary marker. For some churches, it's the way you dress. Some of you may have grown up in a tradition where women wore only skirts and culottes. Oh, remember culottes? Yes. Okay, what are those? Those are boundary markers. That's all. They're, they're outside. They're superficial. They tell us who's in and who's out. And so churches do it. Everyone does it. And that's how transformation was being defined. It was all about being conformed, not being transformed. And that's a problem. That's a problem for churches. That's a problem for anyone. And so someone says to Jesus, what's the law about? What's at the heart of it? And he goes right to what they all knew. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and if you read that story in the Gospels, he says, yes, you've answered correctly, Jesus. It's kind of like, good job, Jesus. But it's like they all knew that. But that's not where they were spending their time. So all the commandments are summed up in those two verses. And when someone turns and orients themselves towards that, repents, receives forgiveness, and moves in the direction of loving God and loving people, then they're in the kingdom. They're in the kingdom. So people who look like they were a million miles away from the kingdom, like prostitutes and tax collectors and all these different people that they look down on, suddenly they get in. And it's interesting because Jesus' followers got that. They understood that. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains 
but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to flames, if I become a martyr, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. You see, Paul's saying, look, there's these obvious outward things that everybody goes, whoa, you are committed. And he says, no, if it's not in love, it's done wrong. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's important here. So all these commandments are summed up here. In fact, John, we were just in 1 John, he puts it even more, more forcefully. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. The second of those two ringing uh, uh, statements that John made in the book of 1 John, in the first chapter, he says, God is light. In him is no darkness, and then he uses a double negative to enforce it. No darkness, never. God is light at the core of his being. That's who he is. God is love at the core of his being. That's who he is. And so he says, how can you say, you know this God who is love and you don't love people? How can you do that? And so over and over in the New Testament, you will see there's a conflict between Jesus and religious leaders. And if you read it, it is almost always over circumcision, dietary laws, or Sabbath keeping. Because that's, that's, that's what they majored in. Superficial, outward things, so they can know who's in and who's out. That's why they thought Jesus was out. He didn't keep the Sabbath the way they sh he should. So they had these boundary markers. And we have them too. And they can vary in culture, and they can vary in age groups. Everybody here has probably been to high school. And everybody here has seen the divisions. The most obvious time is lunch, where everybody goes to their group. Now, I understand people are going to their friends, but it's interesting as you, as you read it, the, the, as, you, as you see it, oftentimes the jocks go with the jocks. And these people go with these people. And African Americans, they go, they're here. And, and it's, you, you can just go, to, just go to a high school and you will see boundary markers. You will see everybody set these things up. And those people can be friends with each other but boy, when the, all the groups together, they go, because that's, that's where safety and comfort is. And so what happens? If people do not experience authentic transformation powered by God to become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, if they don't experience that, then their spirituality, whatever it is, will deteriorate into boundary markers every time. Because that, those boundary markers prop them up with a sense of, I'm on the end. I'm somebody. I'm not the other. And it happens everywhere. It happens in churches. happens in business. happens in school. It happens everywhere. And so, with, it, with Sabbath keeping, what did, the, what did the Jews do? They had 39 separate rules on what you had to do or could not do on a Sabbath. And what did Jesus say? He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the, of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You, you need to notice what he's saying. He's saying, don't stop giving. That's good. But he says, but this is the important stuff. That's the periphery. It doesn't mean you don't do it, but you do the important stuff. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. That's what God cares about. And so when Jesus addressed them, he hit right at the heart. 
He says, you, you should keep doing that without neglecting the most important things. And for us as a church, we want to, this is what we're aiming for. Not to become people who just observe rules. Not to become people who just know a lot. But to become people who genuinely come to love God and to love other folks. Now, you guys know a lot of times I'll talk. I love to. I love to study. I love to talk about the Hebrew. I love to talk about the Greek and, and, and how powerful it can be. As, as we, but I don't ever want to do that at, at the expense of just like sounding like, oh, Bob knows so much and, and it's so good to hear something new and our ears get tickled. It's, it's, I say it because I think it's important for us in our walk with God. Because there's plenty of interesting little Greek things or Hebrew things that I never mention. Because I don't think they really enhance our walk with God. And I don't want it to become just me going, oh, listen to this. I'm going to impress you with something else. That's not how it works. I've been around churches for a long time. And it doesn't take long in almost any church to scratch beneath the surface to find people who are anxious or driven or unsettled or angry or envious or exhausted, just like everybody else is in our culture. And why? It's because sometimes we suck people into the exact same kind of life. We just give them a new set of rules to work with. And we don't want to do that. Because people are thirsty. This is an image that's throughout Scripture. We are thirsty, and God offers us water to drink. You know, the people who wrote the Scriptures lived in a very dry land. And they knew water is life and desert is death. They knew that. So all the way through Scripture, over 150 times, the word for river or stream is often used generally as a metaphor to express a reality of being in the, in the presence of God and being in God's care. It's, it's, it's all over the place. There, there, there's a song we used to sing as, The deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. It's from the book of Psalms. Now, when I first heard this, you know, I thought like I'm walking in, in the George Washington National Forest, and there's trickling streams, and some deer walks by and drinks a little water and looks at me, you know, what's up in deer language or whatever. And, and, but, but we have to remember, no, that's not what's going on. That's not what's going on. This is a desert. This is a rugged, mountainous area with very little water. And so as the deer pants for water... In an extreme environment, so my soul thirsts for you, Lord. And this is our condition. We're thirsty. We're thirsty. And, and if you remember, at one point, Jesus basically is saying, is anybody thirsty? Because if you come to me, out of you will flow water. You will be so satisfied that it will flow and impact others. He promised living, living water to flow out of us. And this is true. It can happen. Your job is not to try harder or run faster or get up earlier. God wants to be there with you and be involved every moment of every day in every place you go. He's saying, jump into my river and be a part of the flow. How do we do that? There's very familiar verses for us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Okay, let me just jump in here real quick. Offer. All right, when he says, I want you to offer your, your okay, grammar is important. So, it is a present 
active imperative. What does that mean? Right now, you do this. It's a command offer. All right? So th this, is, yeah, this is where it's important. All right? Offer uh, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Okay, transformed. That's present passive imperative. What does that mean? Right now, this is a command, passive. Let this be done to you. Allow God to work in you. Place yourself, offer, place yourself in positions where God can work, all right? We didn't plan this, but let me just, if, if you thought about it for a moment, let me just put something in your ear. Kairos ministry. Oh, man, that involves a commitment. But maybe you've been thinking, God, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? And suddenly there's an offer. Now you have a choice. You can offer yourself. You can talk to Thomas and say, I'm willing to give it a shot. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm really the person for the job, but I'll, I'm giving it. Then what happens? Then what happens? You get involved in something like that, and now what are you doing? God is working. You, God is transforming you passive. He's doing it. You offered, he does it. And even the offering is by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. But this is how he, he says, I want you to see this is how it works. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by God, by the renewing of your mind. All right. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the renewing of our mind, and Scripture tells us, how does the renewing of our mind happen? It happens through the Word of God. It happens through prayer. It happens through putting ourselves in situations where God can work, and our mind gets renewed, and we get transformed. We must allow ourselves to be transformed just like we must not allow ourselves to be conformed. See, there is a huge illusion in our day. And it is this, I can just feed the inner me whatever I want and still live according to the values that I hold to. That is not true. That is not true. You can't just shove whatever you want in your eyes, in your ears, in your mouth, whatever, and think that it won't affect the way you live. You can't, it, it's impossible. It's impossible. But God says there is this river. It is scripture. It includes other things, maybe books, maybe movies, maybe people, maybe songs that, that are scriptural, and they lead you in a certain direction, and we need to jump in. And so when you wake up in the morning saying, God, help me with your kingdom, help me bring your kingdom today, God. Help me stay in the flow of your river. You take a shower. Say, God, just like the, this water is washing, I know this is a goofy one, washing over my body. Let, let, it, let it flow. Cleanse me so that I am able to go out and impact people. And then you meet people, right? You meet people as you're driving. You meet idiots who don't understand the rules of the road. These people that go just below the speed limit in the left lane that obviously are doing that to you personally because they hate you, right? How are you going to react? How are you going to react? Are you going to go, I'm so mad at this person because they're going to make me late to this meeting? Or are you going to go, God, you know what? I confess to you that I didn't leave in good time to make this meeting. And I was hoping to make it up by going about 30 over the limit. <laughs> and now you're slowing me down. And I confess to you that I am an idiot. I do that a lot. I do that at least three times this morning. All right? 
And, and so what you do is you start to, you start to orient your, your vision, your sight, your focus, and your interaction with people around you based on who you are and how God wants to work through you to, to impact them. Because it works. Sometimes it seems too good to be true, but it works. And there was this little community of people that started it. They believed it and they lived it. And people saw it and they said, I like what I'm seeing here. Every once in a while, you know, I'll get interviewed sometimes, the, whatever, the newspaper or sometimes people doing projects or sometimes all different kinds of things. I'll get interviewed. And the other day, uh, somebody talked to me and I was just saying, well, you know, a lot of what we do is just based on three little phrases. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And anything's possible when God's involved. We just believe that. Everybody's welcome. doesn't matter who they are. They're welcome here. Nobody's perfect. We're all sinners. And anything is possible if God's involved. We're all equal at the foot of the cross, but when God gets involved, anything's possible. And, and this guy kind of looked at me, and, and he was taking notes, and he just said, that's amazing. Do people really live that? And I said, we're trying. This is our goal. This is what we want to be. And he said, I, that sounds like a place I'd like to come. And I said, that, that's the point. We're not offering, you know, that everything will work great in your life. We're not telling you that if you do X, Y, Z, everything will be happy. We go through struggles. We just sang a song about going through the seasons of life. And sometimes the season of our life is winter. And it's hard. And it's, and it's difficult. And you feel all alone. And God says, you're not. I'm with you. And we readily admit that to one another, that we go through these seasons and these difficulties why? Because we're lying if we don't. But then as we do that, we get this unity and this oneness that is based on the fact that we all have been through struggles and we all are going through them. And these people in the first century lived it. They would tell them to be quiet and they wouldn't stop spreading the message. They would throw them in prison and they'd convert the jailer. They'd whip them and they'd sing praises to God. They'd starve them and they would still share whatever resources they had with the community. Persecute them and they would say, aren't we, isn't it great to suffer for the sake of Christ? Hate them and they'd love you back. Exclude them and they'd invite you in. Kill them and a hundred other people would rise up to take their place. How do you stop people like that? You can't. You can't because it just keeps happening. And I think about, just in closing, this is, this is one of those Greek things. I think about how a lot of that is predicated on the fact that I know God is with me every moment. He has never forgotten me. He, he tells us in, in the Old Testament, all the way to Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He walks with me every step of the way. So there's nothing I'm going through. There's nothing that happens in my life that God's going, oh, oh, I did not expect that. He's with me every moment. And he's, Bob, hang in there. This will turn for good. I will use this, Bob. Trust me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. It's very interesting, though, in Hebrews 13, 5, because I want to show you something. This is, the, this is how impactful this is, and this is the beauty of sometimes other languages. Um, we have a hymn. It's called How Firm a Foundation. And, and the last 
uh, stanza, that hymn says, that soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Now, I want to be honest with you. First time I read that, never, no, never, no, never. Five negatives. Dude, are you just trying to fit the line? I mean, is this just to get it? So That sounds good. But actually, no. It isn't. Because the writer of this hymn took this off of Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But let me tell you what it says in the Greek. You ready? Here's Hebrews 13.5. I will no not ever leave you, and I will not never no forsake you. Five negatives. Five negatives. It's not even readable in English. So they, in the English, they just say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But they miss the beauty of it. God is saying, no, 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 I will not leave you. You will never one moment in your life be apart from me. That happened to Jesus. He took that for us. So that as a follower of Jesus Christ, never once in my best time, in my worst time, on my deathbed, he is there, he's holding my hand, he is with me, he's face to face with me. Scripture paints that so clearly that he is face to face with us. He's not looking down on us, he gets in our face. And he says, Bob, never no will I leave you. No, never, no, I will not forsake you. Never. He he emphasizes it multiple times so that we don't miss the point. God has made a promise and he honors it. And that when we know he's walking with us every moment of the day, he begins to work on us. We allow him to do that. He begins to work on us and he changes us from the inside out. And the way we look at people, the way we look at even the people that are the hardest for us, the ones that would be so easy to hate, he says, we'll change that because I'm the God of love and and, and you can't hate them because I love them. Can you imagine that? Sometimes we get upset with people and God can say, how dare you? How dare you express that to that person? How dare you sound like you hate that person when that's somebody that I loved and died for? Who do you think you are? And he says, I can change you. This this is what will happen in our lives as we yield to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you so clearly and forcefully inform us that you are with us every step of the way. And and that, Father, as we keep that in our consciousness and recognize that and understand who we are in you, it changes the way we live. Lord, help us to put ourselves in positions to allow you to change us.